So if you have your Bibles, you can go to Luke chapter 15, or you can go in the app if you'd like, or your version, whatever you're using. We're going to go through 32 verses of scripture in about 32 minutes. You ready for that? All right, here we go. So be, be ready. All right. We're, we're going all the way through this today as a Tremendous opportunity we have to learn the heart of, the, of Father God today. I'm not sure there's any other story that Jesus tells quite so clearly to help us understand how much the Father loves us. It's, it's shocking. It's embarrassing. You've probably heard it before. You've heard components of, before, of it before. Certainly other people in secular literature. And all, it, this story has been borrowed from so many times over and over again. If you're like me and you grew up in the church, you may have heard this story in isolation, but actually in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three stories. And I think it helps us today since we have the opportunity to see them all together because they build on each other and then there's the, the grand finale. But, but something you've got to understand, when you hear these in isolation, sometimes we skip the context and Luke gives us just a few words of context right at the very beginning that I want every single one of us to pay attention to. It's in Luke chapter 15, it's verse one. He says this, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him and the Pharisees and the, scri and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. Now, I love what one author says. He says, if you believe that occasionally the teachings of Jesus are deep waters, then these next few verses are going to help us see all the way to the bottom. But before we even get to the stories, you have to know the audience. There are sinners there. Say, where does Luke get off calling all these people sinners? We'll talk about what he's talking about here in just a second. But there are sinners present. And then there are the Pharisees and the scribes. They've, they've gathered around the back and they've just perhaps have their arms crossed and they're looking at the crowd and they're waiting to hear and waiting to pounce on what this teacher says. I mean, imagine for just a moment that this teacher from Nazareth has come into town and he's teaching at the tabernacle downtown, cool venue, right? Or maybe he's teaching at the Strand in Marietta Square or maybe... By some miracle of God, we were able to book him downtown Dallas at the Dallas Theater. I mean, come on. This great non-churchy, non-religious venue. This is what he would do. He would go from town to town. Yes, there were moments that he would teach in the synagogues, but he's different from every other teacher. He doesn't advertise on Christian radio. He doesn't call ahead to the village synagogue to ask that they would advertise to their congregation. In fact, his reputation would precede him. And part of that reputation are the crowds that he's known to gather. I mean, his crowds are known to be full of prostitutes, alleged criminals, working class people like fishermen and carpenters and others who have been labeled outsiders for whatever reason. And some in the crowd were formerly what might have been called religious, but now they're not religious people. They have left the conservative legalistic teachings of the Pharisees who give these incredible orations of the Old Testament time and time again. These are brilliant people, but they're losing people to this teacher from Nazareth. All of these people are here to hear the peaceful revolutionary from Nazareth who's rumored to be able to do miracles. There's no more seats. It's wall to wall. It's full with perhaps some of the most ragtag bunch of listeners you can possibly imagine. And then the Pharisees standing against the back of the wall, completely cynical towards the crowd and the one that they've all come to listen to. And tonight's teaching is going to have three stories. They will build on each other. And the third will act 
as a grand finale. Story number one begins in verse three. So he told them this parable. Remember, he often spoke in parables. One of the gospel writers, a couple of the gospel writers actually say that he never spoke without teaching in a parable, without saying something in a parable. So here he goes again. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country, go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends, his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. One lost sheep. I mean, we get that it is valuable. We get that you would go looking, but he looks, you might want to circle, you might want to underline, highlight, whatever you want. The words that say, until he finds it. He seeks and then he finds and then he celebrates. I mean, you can see it. You can feel it in his eyes and in the tone of his voice. I mean, as soon as he finds this lost sheep, he puts it on his shoulders and he's already smiling. He's already rejoicing. He cannot wait to get back and throw the party. He seeks until he finds and then he celebrates. Matthew 18, verse 14, there's another version of a telling of this story. It says, so it is not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish and everyone in the crowd would hear. And I want all of you to hear today from this parable that Jesus is telling us. He's every single one of you matter to him. Every single one of you. There's not a person here. He knows every hair on your head or how many are left. No matter what your circumstances are today, he loves you. He sees you. You are not hiding from him. You cannot hide from him. You matter to him. You have such value, such immeasurable worth to him just in a quick story. So he tells a second one, story number two. Or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, Jesus says, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now he's told the story of a man who lost the sheep. And now he tells the story of a woman because you guys lose stuff too. You know it, all right? I don't know who loses the most at your house, but Jesus is playing it equal. There's a man that lost something and now a woman loses something and now she's gonna clean. I mean, she's gonna clean it like it's never been cleaned before. One lost coin. The coin is worth anywhere from a quarter to a day's wage. It depends on who you're talking to. But whatever it is, she's lost something that's really not that significant. She's gonna throw a party that costs more than the coin, but she has lost this one little coin. And so now she is really gonna clean the house. I mean, I'm sure the bathroom's already clean. I'm sure the the kitchen sink was clean. I'm sure the floors were swept. I'm sure all that. But today, today, The closets will be cleaned out. The cabinets will be cleaned out. The junk drawers, hallelujah. The junk drawers will be cleaned out until finally in that linen closet she forgot she had. Downstairs around the corner in that place where she never goes. On the third shelf down in the back left-hand corner 
There's that sock that is always there and we have no idea where the match is for that sock. And then under the pillowcase that matched the sheets that she gave away to somebody years ago and they've been complaining that they don't have enough pillowcases. Under that pillowcase, she lifts it up and there's the coin. Come on, I mean, everybody, they can feel it. And there is, there's laughter in the crowd. There's a little bit of, he's telling kind of a funny story, right? She throws a party because there's such joy over that one coin. And then Jesus has used a term. He's used a term for sinner. Sinner means missing the mark. And that's what's gone missing on this day. Whether you missed the mark by a little or whether you've missed it wide, you have missed the mark. A good person, a righteous person can miss the mark just as much as a prostitute, a drug dealer or abuser. Another word that could be used and replaced for sinner in the way that Jesus uses it is the word adulterer. Someone who's being adulterous, someone who has set their affections on something that they shouldn't. Our affections are to be set chiefly on the father and the rest of the love we give in our lives should flow from that. The love that you have for a spouse or as a parent or as a friend or as a neighbor should be an overflow of love that's received from the father in relationship with him. They have listened to him. They have laughed. The idea of throwing a party for this coin is absurd, but he ends it with such a powerful statement that they cannot help but hang on every word. There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents, the one who is lost today, the one who's isolated today. You think he will never find you. There is no way he sees you. He's seeking and he will find. He will seek until he finds. And he may have brought you into this place today because he wants you to be found. And then the grand finale, story number three. And he said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me a share of property that is coming to me. And the father unbelievably divided his property between them. Now Jesus has titled the story right at the very top. A man with two sons. Many people have referred to this story and perhaps you've referred to it and know it as the story of the prodigal son. We'll talk about why that word is used here in just a moment. But Jesus gives it the title, a man with two sons. And you can see with the story that Jesus gives each boy equal treatment. It's about both of them. The story is different from the first two. Sheep wander off from the shepherd. They're not that bright. God often refers to his people as sheep and and we need to talk about that at another time. But sheep need to be redirected. They're prone to wander. They need to be brought back all the time. A woman loses a coin. It happens. She loses things, but she cleans the house. She finds it again. All is right with the world. But this story starts out differently because Jesus describes a shocking level of disrespect just in the first couple verses by this younger of these two boys, the younger brother. Give me the property, 
that's promised me. Give me my inheritance. Dad, I know that one day when you die, that some of this is going to belong to me as the younger son, actually a third of everything would end up belonging to him. For the older brother, two thirds would belong to him. But I want it all right now. I don't want a relationship with you. I want all the plans, all the successes, all the rewards that you are going to give to me. And I want you to give them to me right now. Old man, you might as well be dead. What a shocking thing that people would hear. There are two distinct groups listening in to this story. The sinners, those who have missed the mark. Those who are sitting listening and who would not even pretend that they are anything but that. Those who are sitting and listening and thinking, I know that I have messed up in my life. But there are also Pharisees listening in and they do not even realize that they're in the story, but they are. And the father's response to both of these boys is pretty important. Jesus is telling the story. We can't even really begin to grasp this, but trust me with this. Jesus is telling the story in a predominantly patriarchal society. In other words, father knows best and his words and his wishes are absolute. Anything that dad wants to happen, he can have happen. But in this story, he diminishes himself. In order to fulfill his younger son's wishes, he probably has to sell some land. He probably has to sell some possessions. He would also go ahead and give the older brother his portion, according to the story that Jesus tells. But he's diminished himself in front of everyone. He's allowed himself to be dishonored in front of everyone. He will not force himself on his boys. No father would ever act like this. No father would ever respond like this, but this one does. And verse 13, the younger son, he's got it all now. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property on reckless living. Everything that he got his wish, he got everything he wanted and quickly he loses it. He squanders it in reckless living. It's the only time the word is ever used in scripture. Jesus is the only one to use it to talk about being extravagantly wasteful. In some of your translations, it's translated as prodigal. That word would show up later on in history, years and years later. But Jesus is talking about someone who's being reckless in their wastefulness. What did he do? Oh, come on, we want the, the details. I wanna read it in the tabloids. Jesus doesn't define it in his story. He allows us to fill in the blanks because I think all of us can recognize at some point in our life, all of us can identify with the idea that we've had wasteful moments, that we've had reckless moments, that we've had moments where we've done things that we really wish we should not have done those things. And we're gonna see the father's response to that in just a moment. He gets to the end of himself. He's at rock bottom, so he thinks. And then a famine comes. Imagine people listening to this story. Have you heard this story before? Is it on your street? Is it a coworker's child? Is it in your family? Is it a nephew? Is it a niece? You have someone like this in your life? How do people respond to this? They just, sometimes they just shake their heads in this kind of judgy disappointment. Mm -mm, mm -mm, mm -mm. Should not have done that. What 
kind of mother did she turn out to be? That child has gone off so far off the deep end. You know what? I bet it's mom's fault. Really and true. We get so judgy and that's got to be going on in this moment. And then there's also people listening to the story with tears in their eyes. Either because they know what it feels like to be this kind of mom or dad or because they know what it's like to be this kind of son or daughter and they've done those things. They've had the wasteful moments, the reckless moments. How would the father respond? So the younger brother thinks aloud to himself as Jesus tells the story. Jesus uses this device in verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. And then he decides to prepare a speech. Have you ever done this? Have you ever had to prepare a speech on the way home? If you're a husband coming home to your wife and you had to prepare a speech, uh, honey, I'm sorry, uh, but I, I, I shouldn't have spent the money there, and, but I needed to golf, and so it's, it was gonna happen. And so I'll be, you know, I'm spending the college fund and going to Myrtle Beach with the boys and it's gonna be fine, you'll, we'll, we'll be okay. If you'll clean the house and find a lost coin, it'll be fine if you just would do that. If, you've, if you're a kid and you have, maybe you remember doing this with your parents, did you ever have to do this with mom or dad, like prepare a speech in your head? Like all the time, yeah, I've had to do that. I mean, I, I don't know, my first couple years driving, there were a lot of little accidents, little fender benders, and I had to prepare a speech, all right? Listen, I backed up and the mailbox wasn't there. And then somehow the devil moved it and put it there. And it's not my fault. Um, and so if we pray, good things will happen and the, the dent will be healed and you're gonna have to pay for that. And so, so he prepares a speech. And here it is, verse 18. I will arise And go to my father and I will say to him, Father, don't you talk like extra spiritual when you're in sin, right? Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm sure Jesus told the story better than this, don't worry. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Short and sweet to the point. That's the way you go, by the way, if you've ever got to talk to the father, just go, just be sweet. He just, he doesn't need you to drag it out. I'll be one of your hired servants. This means he's not asking to live at home. Hallelujah. He's not asking to move back in. He's asking instead to be someone that dad hires so that he can work. He can get roommates and live somewhere else, but ultimately he can work off the debt. Got the speech not going to work here with these pigs anymore. I'm not going to work in this low level entry level job. This is not working for me. I'm going back home. And he rose verse 20 and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. He had been in a far country, but Jesus doesn't tell a story of coming back from a long journey or a long process to get home. He had lost everything. He'd been working with the pigs, but look at the response he gets. 
he comes back to a father whose eyes had always been gazing towards that far country. A father whose gut reaction is not one of anger or hurt or defensiveness, but compassion. A running father. Fathers in the first century, they don't run. They don't run, they're dignified. They've got long robes on, but the, this father, he runs, he runs, he embraces his son, he picks him up off the ground, he swings him around, he kisses his grown son. It's so embarrassing. It's this embarrassing, undignified affection. And Jesus is trying to tell you it's exactly the way God the Father loves you. Every single one of you. He sees you. He knows you. He knows you by name. You are not lost to him. He, see, he loves you with an undignified love. Oh, that's the, one of the best parts of being a dad. I love embarrassing them. It's so great especially now that I have one that's 14, but it works on the 11 year old too. I mean, if I can somehow in front of their friends, wrap my arms around them and plant the sloppiest wet kiss on the cheek in front of everybody, it's so awesome to be a dad and embarrass him like that. And I know, I know, amen, brother. Somebody sit back here. Listen, I know he hates it and I know he loves it. There's never been a father like this. A heavenly father who swings his kids around, who loves them. And to all the younger brothers in the room, to all who have had wasteful, reckless moments, to everybody who's ever used up a portion of their life and thought, God is done with me. He doesn't want anything to do with me anymore. Can I tell you? No, 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 no. He will run to you. He will pick you up and he will love you with an everlasting love. His love is higher. It's deeper. It's wider. It's so hard to explain. I cannot even begin to. It's an undignified affection he has for you. (laughs) Listen. I know over the years, I know over the years in this room, there are people, there have been prostitutes in the room. There have been drug dealers in the room. There have been addicts in the room. And man, do I hope you're here today because I want you to know you are welcome here. And God, the father himself has drawn himself to you because you don't have to live like that anymore. He wants to scoop you up in his arms and he wants to love you in a way that you don't believe you deserve to be loved. And listen, I know there's others of you too. You listen to me and you just shake your head. I know there's skeptics in the room. I know the skeptics, I know you're arrogant and I still love you and God does too. I know the agnostics who probably in some ways know more about the scriptures than I do. Their heads are full. And I know you're here today and I know you have shaken your fist and you wish God was dead, but can I tell you he's not He's not dead and he welcomes you just as wide and free as he would welcome anybody else. You can come back home. If you would just humble yourself just a smidge, he will run to you and show compassion on you today. You fill in the blanks. Jesus doesn't do it. You fill in the blanks. Only you know the hours, the days, the relationships, the resources, the opportunities wasted, but the father is waiting for you. He's looking in your direction. He knows what you did. He knows who you are. It doesn't matter how dark, how deep, how awful it's been. He's ready to love you. Look what he does. The father says, quick, 
bring quickly the best robe. That would be dad's robe, by the way, and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And what did they do? Just like in the other two stories, they began to celebrate. They got dad's robe. They got dad's ring signifying he was part of the family. They got him some shoes. Why? Because he offered to come back and be a hired servant. Hired servants and slaves didn't wear shoes around the house, but the family would always wear shoes. He says, put some shoes on my boy. He was dead and he's alive again. He's as much my son today as he was the day that he left. Do you know that years later when this father would die, this boy would get an inheritance all over again? He would get everything that was ever promised to him. He is completely restored. What an amazing story. And the story could have ended right there and been just like the previous two. But this story is different. And I don't know if he changed it on the spot because of his audience or if he planned to tell it this way. He's the son of God. He can do whatever he wants. But this one is different. Now his older son, the man has two sons. They get equal treatment in the story. His older son was in the field. That would mean he's working. And he came and he drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing. A party. I didn't know we were having a party. He didn't ask me about a party. He's supposed to ask me about the party. There's a party. There's a lot of people. And that looks like dad dancing. That's embarrassing. That's not nice. That's not pretty. Don't do that. Dad is dancing. He calls a servant over and he says, what's going on? And the servant says, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. What an incredible ending to the story. This is absolutely amazing. Surely the brother wants to celebrate and get in and start dancing right away, but that's not how the story goes. Verse 28, but he was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate my friends. You never even gave me a goat and he gets a fattened calf. But when this son of yours came, my brother, I'm not even gonna use his name right now, who has devoured your property. He's wasted so much. He's had prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. He's angry. And what does the father do with the angry son? He entreats him. He begs him. He says, come on to the party. The word that Jesus uses that Luke writes down is actually from the Greek word parakaleo. It means encouragement. It means to come alongside of. It means to put your arm around him. He puts his arm around his older boy and he says, come on, come join the party. And the, and the older brother just stiffs arms him. He says, no, I'm not going in there. I have been here. I have worked hard. I have done everything you have ever asked. And you throw a party for that loser brother of mine. Why is this story different? Why doesn't it just end like the other two? I think it's different because there's an audience here. The Pharisees are standing in the back. And he loves them. They're his biggest critics. 
and he loves them. And he says, guys, pull up a chair. You've been so faithful. You've obeyed so well. You followed so well. You've been so faithful. Come join the party. And they refuse. See, this story is not one, is not about one lost son. This story is about two. They are both lost. They are both using the father to see what they can get from from him rather than just enjoying their positions and their relationship. The older brother, he believes that his obedience and his moral authority somehow gives him the right to ask for and expect whatever he wants. Father, I have been so good, you should be good to me. And if you believe God has to bless you because of how good you've been or because you've been through so much suffering and come through on the other side, that somehow now God the Father actually owes you something, then you are actually the older brother. And if you find yourself in the position of wanting more from the Father and being jealous of what he's doing in the lives of others, then you are the older brother. Older brothers obey God to get things. They don't obey him to get to God himself. Elizabeth Elliott tells this story from the Apocrypha. It's not in scripture, but it's a fictional story about Simon Peter and about Jesus and the disciples. And Jesus one day tells all the disciples, he says, hey, pick up a rock and carry it for me. Follow me. And Peter, Peter's a smart guy. So Peter picks up a rock that barely, it's just, it's smaller than his hand. He picks up a small rock and he puts it in his pocket and he goes for a walk with Jesus, with all the other disciples. And they get to a a spot to to stop and, and Jesus takes all the rocks and he turns them to bread. And then Jesus says, pick up a rock and follow me. Now, Peter's no dummy. Peter picks up a bolt. I mean, just whatever he can bend with your knees, Peter, please. And he just, he does, he puts it on his shoulders and they walk for a couple hours together. And Peter, man, he's staggering. He's having the hardest time. This is really tough. This is really, really difficult. And they get to a body of water and Jesus says, throw the rock in the water. What? Peter throws the rock in the water. Of course, Peter's was the biggest splash. It was amazing. But where's the bread? And when he goes and when he questions Jesus, Jesus responds with a question. He says, well, Peter, who are you carrying the rock for? See, Peter was trying to get for himself. And do you understand what Jesus is saying in this story? You can be religious and be just as lost as the one choosing to live apart from God. Luke 15, the father says to the older son, he's still begging him, he's still treating, entreating him. He says to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Shouldn't we, shouldn't we be celebrating this? And is it possible that Jesus is actually teaching that real Christianity, as we call it today, is completely different from religion? Jesus did not come to start a religion. He came to show us a way to get to the Father and the only way to get to the Father is through him. There are tons of people sitting at home today because they don't wanna come to church and get religion and I don't blame them. 
They've heard the wrong message. Religion says, I obey, so I must be accepted by God. But the gospel says, I am accepted by God, so I obey. I am accepted. I am loved by God, and so I will serve him. I am loved by God, so I will give back to him. I am loved by him, so I will spend time at his feet in prayer and learning his word. I am loved by him, and that should impact how we treat everyone else. Imagine how this attitude that God has towards us could change us and change our community if we would then put that attitude back onto others. If we kept no record of wrongs, if we would love without keeping score, imagine how it would change your marriage. If you would serve, if you don't serve your spouse to get something from them, to get something in affection, but rather you have their affection so you serve them. We don't serve God to earn his affection. We already have it. The apostle Paul says it in Ephesians chapter two, he says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. He already loves you. Every other religion and philosophy says you have to do something to connect to God. But Jesus, but in Christianity, Jesus Christ says it's already done. I've done the work. I've loved you with an everlasting love. He not only restores us in spite of our sin, but he, his desire is to restore us in spite of our own self-righteousness. His offer is one of completely unrestrained love and restoration. No matter which of the brothers that you identify with today, he loves you with an embarrassing love. And he wants to wrap you in that robe. He wants to put a ring on your finger. And he wants you to understand that you are already accepted and loved by him. Why would you ever push away God the Father? There's a story of a man in 18th century London. His name is Robert Robinson. He's on his way on this Sunday morning to anywhere other than church. He used to be this passionate, fiery, completely in love with Jesus person. But for now, whatever, for whatever reason, and there are many, I'm sure, he's drifted. Life hasn't gone the way that he thought it would. And so he doubts the father's love. I don't know if anybody's ever felt like that. And so on this day, according to the story, he hails a carriage. This is before you could hail uh, taxi cabs. And so he's, he's hailing a, a carriage uh, with a horse named Uber, I'm sure. And there is a, a lady already in the carriage and she offers to share the carriage with him, but she's wearing her Sunday best. He knows she's going to church and he doesn't wanna have anything to do with this. No, 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 I, I really don't wanna, I'm not getting in there. No, come on, it's okay. We can share the carriage. And so finally he gives in, he gets into the carriage. They exchange pleasantries, introductions. Wait, 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 wait. 
did you say your, your name is Robert Robinson? Surely you're not the, the poet Robert Robinson, whose poetry I have in this book that I have with me today. Oh boy, did I get in the wrong carriage. My goodness. Uh, yeah, that's, that's me. Did you write this? Did you write this? Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy, never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Years later, it would be put to music and become a hymn that we still sing to this day. Did you, did you write this? Yeah, I wrote that, but that's, that's not me anymore. I'm not, I'm not there anymore. Here he's, he's drifted. He's far off. And so she says, yeah, but did you write this? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Words that he had written down years and years later under some kind of inspiration brought him back to the Father on that day. And he never left. We are all prone to wander. We are all prone to a little bit, at least, of wastefulness, recklessness. Some of us have better gifts than others in this area. Others of us are so full of our own self-righteousness that we don't realize that with that, we have pushed him away. And whatever country you have found yourself in, far from being able to accept the embarrassing love of the father, today he says to you, come home, come home. Would you bow your heads with me? Today, with heads bowed and eyes closed, would you allow the spirit of God to speak louder and clearer than I ever could? If there's self-righteousness that you need to lay down, judginess that you need to lay down, whatever it is, lay it down, lay it aside. If you've been reckless, if you know you've missed the mark, if, you, if sinner is not too harsh a word for you, you get it. And he invites you to come back home. There may be some here today who've never accepted his invitation to be part of the family. Even today, you can pray and reach out to him in your own words and come back home. Come home even for the first time to accept the salvation plan of God who sent his one and only son, Jesus, to die on the cross for you, your access to the Father. And if you want to pray and receive him, you can do that right now in your seat. You can come down and talk to one of our prayer team members. You can go to the help center afterwards. We'd love to help you get started in your walk with Jesus. You can take the Get Connected card, any of you today. You can place it in the buckets at the end. You can take it to the help center. 
Talk to our prayer team. Let us know how we can come alongside you. God, today, you're such a good father and you call us home. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us today. Draw your people fresh today. Those who thought they didn't matter, the outcast, the isolated, the alone, the abused, the confused, God, bring them in and all the rest to an embarrassingly loving Father. Father, fill us with your love. Fill us with your love, God, and let it overflow. Let it overflow in our marriages. Let it overflow as we parent. Let it overflow in our workplaces, on the streets where we live. May we demonstrate the love of God that doesn't keep anybody away, but draws people in. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.